Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Brothers and sisters, please open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 25, and please rise as we honor the, the public reading of God's Word. We're looking at Deuteronomy chapter 25. And we're going to be looking this evening at verses 5 through 19. At verses 5 through 19. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's Word. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall... Uh, call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer, So shall it be done to the man who will not build up his, his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. If two men fight together, and the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of the one attacking him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the genitals. Then you shall cut off her hand. Your eyes shall not pity her. You shall not have in your bag differing weights, a heavy and a light. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. You shall have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure, that your days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who behave unrighteously, are an abomination to the Lord your God. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary, and you did not fear God. Therefore it shall be. When the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around, in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess, as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would open up our eyes to understand this portion of your word. Help us, Lord, to understand how it applies, for we do not have leveret marriages, we do not have the exact same situations that are found here, and yet, Lord, your your word yet still speaks to us, and it speaks to us clearly about uh, the obligation that you would have us to perform, the duties you would have us to perform even today. And so, so, Lord, we, we pray that you would help us to be obedient to you, to Uh, live lives that are godly uh, for the sake of the honor and glory of your name. For we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's always a temptation for us to think of our own needs, our own wants, our own desires, uh, the the various problems that come about in our life. It's always a tendency for us to think about those for ourselves 
before and rather than thinking about those with regard to others. When calamities come, when difficulties hit, there's a tendency for us to even give a kind of sigh of relief when we recognize that those things are not actually happening to us. When they come to, to others, we think, uh, maybe in, in the, the deep place of our hearts, something we would never voice, that you were, you were thankful that they did not, in fact, come to us. When people struggle to have children, when people face financial burdens, anything like this, very often it's the case that uh, we, we do not feel the pain nearly as acutely as those who are actually undergoing these things. And in some ways, it's not really an obligation for us to feel things exactly the way uh, they happen to others. And yet, and yet, there is a tendency for us uh, even at times when others are in trouble and in need, when we seek to, to do something that preserves our own needs, wants, and desires rather than those of other people. And we can actually then hurt other people as we pre- uh, seek to preserve uh, ourselves. And so, for instance, if someone uh, is, is um, at a job and they're at work and there is a position that opens up, a position that's higher than the one that they're currently in, and there are multiple people that are seeking to, to grab this position, to get this position, to, be, to, be, uh, to, to get this promotion. There may be um, a temptation to subtly undermine uh, those who are also uh, seeking to get this position, where there is a, a desire for us to get the position. Therefore, we are, are seeking to, um, to act against those others who may also desire the position. Or perhaps if you are trying to get something new and you have to sell an old version of the thing that you're, that, that, that you're trying to get, you will talk about how great it is, this thing that you're selling, and it really you don't really like it at all. And that's just for the sake of, of obtaining something that's nicer and better for yourself so you can get a better price when you sell it and then buy something for cheaper. Perhaps even when you're buying the other thing, you'll say that this other thing is, is terrible. It's got this or that defect, though really in reality you're perfectly uh, content with it. Uh, all of these things are actions that spring from covetousness. They're actions that spring from covetousness. They are a desire to build up ourselves because we desire something that we do not have and we do not want another person to get it and therefore we act against that person for the sake of of us ourselves attaining the thing that we may or may not uh, have a right to actually obtaining. And these are the kinds of actions that Moses is speaking of here. This is is Moses' explanation of the 10th commandment. We come here really to... Uh, the very end of Moses' exposition of the law. Next week will be the, the very last uh, chapter that deals with this particular uh, section of Deuteronomy. And here we have Moses' formal explanation of the 10th commandment. Now, um, really verses 5 through 16 are related to the 10th commandment. Uh, verses 17 through 19 are something of a transition. Um, chapter 26 is something of a, a summary of the whole. And verses 17 through 19 of chapter 25 are really transitional. And they really set up the conclusion that's going to be given uh, in Deuteronomy. So the, the, the uh, language with regard to the destruction of Amalek is really looking forward to um, things that are going to have to be done when the people of God come into the land that are related to the discussion that comes in chapter 26. And now even then, uh, verses 5 through 16 of chapter 25 really fall into two different parts. So there are first in verses 5 through 12, there are uh, laws concerned with the preservation of our neighbor's house, so not acting covetously with regard to the family of our neighbors. And then in verses 13 through 16, there are laws concerning the preservation of our neighbor's wealth, that we would not uh, act in ways that diminish 
the and take advantage of uh, the, the the financial resources uh, of our neighbors. And interestingly, these two divisions uh, correspond to the two divisions that are found in the Tenth Commandment. So if you remember the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife first, and then you shall not covet the various things that he has. So the first one deals with the family, and the second one uh, deals with his actual possessions. And it's the same uh, twofold distinction that we have here in verses uh, 5 through 16. And so we'll look at this passage actually under three headings. We'll look at the preservation of our neighbor's house in verses 5 through 12, the preservation of our neighbor's wealth in verses 13 to 16, and then uh, the destruction of the Amalekites, which again is something of a transition in verses 17 uh, through 19. So looking again then at verses 5 through 12, you'll notice that this itself breaks out very nicely into two different sections. And the first section is the the longest section of this particular chapter, and that's the laws with regard to the leveret and marriage as it's so called, the leveret marriage in verses 5 through 10. Now, question uh, that's important for us to understand as we get into uh, this particular section of Deuteronomy. What is a leveret marriage and why is it something that was practiced in ancient Israel? Um, and even, even more than that, this is actually something that was practiced even beyond just the borders of Israel. Uh, many ancient societies actually had laws that were something akin to uh, the leveret marriage. Um, the first thing to note is we call it a leveret marriage today, but it has nothing to do with Levi. It is, it's not called a leveret marriage because it's from the tribe of Levi or anything like that. Uh, Levir uh, is Latin for brother-in-law, and that's where it comes from. It's a law with regard to a brother-in-law. And basically, the main thrust of the law is if a man dies childless, then the brother of uh, the, the, of the widow, uh, the, the, the widow's dead husband, uh, is to... Uh, go into uh, the widow such that um, there can be a name preserved for the dead brother. Um, that is to say then that the child that is born uh, to the widow uh, by the dead man's brother, that this would then be counted as the dead man's child, and therefore there would be a preservation uh, of his name in Israel. You can see from verses 5, the second part of verse 5 and the beginning of verse 6, that this is really the main point. It's really for no other reason than simply to preserve the name of the dead brother. If there is not a son, then the uh, then the, the name of the, the dead man will be extinguished from Israel. And so as a way to preserve that name, uh, there is this provision that's given such that then the, the name can be uh, carried on. So the whole point is the preservation of the name uh, of the, the dead Israelite. Now, why is this important? Why was it important for uh, ancient societies, and even more particularly, especially in Israel, why was it important for uh, the Israelites to practice uh, such a thing? Why was it important that uh, an Israelite who dies young, that he still have a kind of remembrance of his name? Well, the reason it was so important is because the preservation of a name, of someone's name after death, was something of a testimony given to the people of God that they in fact had eternal life. There's a a connection between the the preservation of a name that extends beyond death in your children and the connection then with uh, you yourself being extended beyond death uh, and being given uh, eternal life. And this is something that was common in the Old Testament with regard to the various things that were given. 
you know, the reason why the land, for instance, is so important is because the land is a testimony to the same thing. If you have a right to the land, you have a right to eternal life. That's the idea. Um, if, if you have a right to the land where God dwells, then God will surely one day raise you up to, to be in that land. And again, this is why the, the exile was so uh, weighty and brutal is because they understood they were being cast off. They were being cast out of the land. That was a pledge uh, of their salvation. And so, for instance, we have in Isaiah chapter 56, uh, in a prophecy that's given to uh, concerning the coming of the Messiah, what would happen in his days, there is a, a word of encouragement that's given both to eunuchs and to foreigners. And the reason it's given to eunuchs is because a eunuch uh, can't have any preservation of his name. And so what Isaiah says is he says, you know, uh, let not the, the eunuchs say that I'm a dry tree and, and I'm basically I'm just going to be gone and then th that'll be it. Because what, he's, what, what Isaiah promises, he says, you know, when the Messiah comes, uh, you will be given a name and a place in the house of God that's better than sons and daughters. on through your children. you'll have actually a name and a place in the house of God given by God himself that cannot be removed from you and that, and that will endure forever because you will be living with God uh, forever. And so that's really the point. The reason why this was so important is because these various things, again, the land name, all these things uh, were uh, ways to give basically a picture lesson to the people of God and an encouragement to them that they would, in fact, uh, have eternal life. It all pointed to this great reality. And therefore, it was right and good in the Old Testament for there to be some kind of provision for the maintenance of the name of a dead Israelite. Just as it was not right for an Israelite to lose possession of the land, uh, which was guaranteed to him by salvation, by redemption, uh, which is why there's a provision, for instance, in uh, the, the year of Jubilee for the return of all land. The reason that land is returned is because um, it's a testimony of salvation. It has nothing really to do with the, the rights of people to be on land forever, that sort of thing. The idea is, is that you get to be on that land forever because it's a testimony of your salvation. Well, in the same way, there is a need and necessity in the Old Testament to have some kind of provision such that no name in Israel would ever be, be blotted out. That in Israel, because the Israelites have been redeemed by God, that their name gets to continue forever. Their inheritance can't be removed and their name cannot be removed because it has been made permanent by the salvation that God himself gives. And this is why then, uh, in uh, a story that's related to the Leverett marriages in Genesis chapter 38, why Onan's sin is so egregious. If you remember the, the story of uh, Tamar, where um, you know uh, Tamar's first husband dies and then his brother marries her, but refuses to come together with her in such a way that the production of a child is possible. And the text even says in Genesis 38 that the reason why um, this, the, the, the husband, the new husband of Tamar refused to do this was because he knew the child would not be counted as his. And this was in accordance with the Leveret marriage, the Leveret laws. Uh, the first child to be raised up would not be yours, it would be the, your dead brother's. And so he basically coveting um, and being envious of the, the fact that, the, that his brother, though dead, would have a child when he himself would not, he refused to come together with, uh, with Tamar. And this is why the sin was so, uh, uh, was so bad. 
And we see here then that there is even in verses 7 through 10, that's the, uh, that's the general gist of the law. In verses 7 through 10, there are the various penalties that are given for disobedience. So, you know, if a, if a, a brother's unwilling to do this, then there is uh, provision for the woman to go to the elders of the city and uh, the elders are to address the man. And then after that, the woman is to take off her sandal, the sandal of the man, and spit in his face. And basically the idea is that there's to be a public humiliation uh, for someone who would not raise up a, a, the, a, a child to bear and carry on the name of uh, an, an Israelite. They have a right to have their name be carried on. Now, that's the basic idea of the Leverite marriage. And an obvious question comes at this point, how is this applicable to us today? Um, Leverite marriages are not practiced today, and that for good reason. The testimony of eternal life that is signified in the Leverite marriage and the carrying on of the name through the, the giving of a child um, is no longer done through physical things like children and land. We, we are not assured of our eternal life by the presence of children or grandchildren or any such thing. Um, we're not assured of eternal life because we possess a certain land. That was the way in which God communicated this to the Old Testament saints. But now we have the real thing. We have the thing which the eunuch in Isaiah 56 greatly longed for, in which it was prophesied that he would receive. God has given us a name that is better than sons and daughters. And if he's given us a name that's better than sons and daughters, we no longer need to look to something like a levered marriage and the children that we bear as evidence uh, that God is, in fact, for us. And this is even what we see, for instance, in Revelation chapter 2, uh, verse 17, for the one who overcomes, God himself will give him a name. He'll write it on a stone and it'll be given to him. God himself will give that name and it'll be preserved forever. It's part of the, the promise of everlasting life. Your name will never be cut off. It will be in the house of God forever. And so there is no sense in which we uh, make use of leverant marriages today. And there's no reason that we have to. Uh, it doesn't serve uh, any kind of purpose that's not already fulfilled uh, in Christ. But if you were to ask then, well, is there then no application? The answer is there actually is a number of ways in which the principles still apply to us. And that is um, that in, in our situations that we do not practice leverant marriages, there is still a necessity for you to always seek the good of those who are in your family. And that's really the, the principle that shines through. It is the duty of the brother of a dead Israelite to raise up a child for the sake of, of his dead brother. It's his duty to do that for the sake of his family. There is an obligation to care for and to preserve uh, the good of, of those who are in our families. And so the general principle that the, the, the good that is done in the Leverett marriage, so to speak, uh, is preserved with things like caring for aging parents, uh, caring for family members. Uh, you think of uh, siblings, perhaps, that have difficult things happen to them. Uh, there is a necessity that you would care for them and preserve uh, their good as best as you can. And often, these kinds of situations carry along with them the same temptation uh, that is found with regard to the levered marriage. So, for instance, Onan, who did not want to, um, to be united with Tamar in such a way that he would produce uh, a son. The reason was is because he cared about his own situation more than his brothers who, and who, who had died. And that's the same temptation that we have whenever we think about uh, caring for those in our families who are struggling. If you've got aging, aging parents, it's the same question. Will you uh, sacrifice 
your own prosperity and well-being for the sake of the good of those who are, are having a difficult time in your household or even those who are outside of your household who are yet in your family? Uh, will you uh, care for those who are in your family? Um, the question of whether or not in the ancient world, in, in ancient Israel, whether or not you would um, submit to a leveret marriage is the same kind of situation, the same kind of um, moral obligation as caring for those who are within your family. Very often caring for aging parents or perhaps caring for uh, siblings who uh, have difficult things come upon them, uh, is, you're faced with the exact same questions. Will you uh, seek their good even if it means um, some kind of obstacle or difficulty in your own life? There is a sacrifice that comes with the leveret marriage for the sake of helping out a family member. And that is the thing that is still obligatory upon all of us. Remember what the Apostle Paul says, that those who do not care for their family are worse than unbelievers. They're worse than unbelievers. If you do not care for your family, you are worse than an unbeliever. And that's because if you don't care for your family, you have denied the gospel. Uh, Put very simply, you've denied the gospel. And so as being one who claims to know Christ, you bring a greater dishonor on Christ when you Uh, when you violate his precepts in such a way that others um, heap dishonor on Christ for your actions. And therefore, it is even worse than being an unbeliever. And so that's the leveret marriage. Uh, Even though we don't practice it today, we still do need to care for family members and to preserve their good as best as possible. Now, the second law can seem a bit strange, but it is still related to the idea of maintaining the house of another. And that's, that's the thread that pulls through with verses 11 and 12. Now, the situation is two men are fighting, and the wife of one man grabs the other by the genitals in order to help out her husband. And the idea is she, just, she doesn't want her husband to lose the fight or be injured, that sort of thing. And the penalty is very severe. She is to have her hand cut off, and there's to be no pity, uh, as Moses says in verse 12. Now, The question comes in, why this law? Why is this law here? And what is its purpose? And again, it's helpful to think of this law in relation to the previous issue. The reason this was such a bad sin is because a woman grabbing another man there, particularly in the context of a fight, risks uh, injuring a man such that he would not be able to preserve his name, such that he could not have children. Uh, And this is where there is a a similar thread that pulls through with verses 5 to 10. The issue in both cases is uh, there must always be maintained in Israel a, a, a way for an Israelite to pass on his name through having children. It was a very uh, important thing, and this is why then uh, this was such a bad sin. Now, in some ways, there could, it could be right for a wife to intervene in some way. It was, it's not necessarily wrong here, I, I don't think, to, to say that the wife is wrong to ha- try to help her husband in any way. The, the thing that's wrong is if you, if you try to help out your husband in such a way that you permanently uh, disable a man from having children and you hinder his house permanently by your actions, then you have, uh, in fact, gone uh, too far. And one of the principles that we see from this then is that um, there may be times when In your life, you are opposed by others, and there may even be times when some kind of reaction against that person is necessary and good. However, there is always a a line that if you cross it, you have 
uh, you have acted in a way that the reaction is actually worse than the thing which is done to you. Uh, there is, There are certain lines that cannot be crossed, and the thing that is being emphasized here is anything that affects the family of another person permanently, that if you seek to, to retaliate against somebody by harming their family, uh, you have gone too far. The idea is that there must be a, an active preservation of the family of others as best as possible. Uh, there is to, uh, is to be nothing that is to, to hinder uh, this, and this is the reason for uh, this particular law. And so Moses has given us then these, these two principles, these two uh, ways in which we are to preserve the families of others, ways in which we are not to covet others, but we're to be willing even to suffer harm for the sake of maintaining the families uh, of others. Now, the second section in verses 13 to 16 deals with uh, pr- the preservation of your neighbor's wealth. And this comes with the laws concerning uneven weights and uneven measures. Now, the idea here is there are there's these two, two things. There's uneven weights and unequal measures. And there's a prohibition first that comes with a, a prohibition against uh, uneven weights and measures. So the idea here is um, you would have a certain weight if you're selling something that would make a, you know, a pound be different than what, uh, than what someone is actually anticipating it being. And that's for the sake of getting a better price so it doesn't appear that you're getting a better price when you sell something. And then you have a different weight that you use when you're buying. And this, this price then, this weight then would make it make something actually cheaper than it, than it appears to be. And therefore, you can take advantage of your neighbor and basically cheat and deceive, defraud him, and ultimately steal from him. This would be a, a dishonest use uh, of things. Uh, uh, this would be essentially equivalent to the example that was used in the introduction um, in terms of a modern-day application. You know, we, we don't establish prices by arbitrary weights. Um, the gram, the pound, has been, the kilogram has been very exactly defined, so there's no way really to do this in exactly the same way today. But there is a, a similar kind of thing, which is, you know, if you're selling something, when you heap praises on the thing that you sell that you're actually dissatisfied with, and then when you're buying something that you really, really want, and you just criticize it in order to try to get a better price, this would be the same kind of thing. There's an arbitrary attempt to change the price in your favor, whether you're buying or you're selling. And this would be a violation of the principles that Moses is uh, setting in uh, verses 13 to 16. Um, The idea is that there is a a desire to have something that you may not have the rights to or have the ability to to receive, and yet you're going to do basically whatever it takes uh, to get your hands on that thing, even if it means defrauding uh, your brother or your sister. Um, you are, are, are jealous of the thing that they have, or the jealous of the, you're envious of the thing that you do not have, and therefore you act in this way. Now, notice then, this is uh, followed up by some reasons that, that Moses gives, the reasons why you are uh, to obey this particular law. You're to have just weights and measures. The idea here in terms of application would be that you know, everything that you do in, in life must be fair. Um, and the reason you are to do this is because if you do this, your days will be lengthened in the land which God is giving you. Now, this is a, uh, a reason that's given for uh, keeping many, many laws in Deuteronomy. We've looked at this a number of times. And the point, again, is simply that uh, if you defraud others, then God will at some point uh, remove the outward things that show that you are a part of his, of his children. 
Um, and this is something that still does happen today. Uh, we don't have land in the same way, but when the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation, Revelation 2 and 3, threatens to remove the lampstand uh, of a church if they do not repent, this is essentially the exact same threat. If you continue in ungodliness and unrighteousness in such a way that it shows that you have turned away from God, then God will bring some kind of judgment against the church and it will be shown definitively that you are outside of salvation. That's what's being threatened in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And this is the reason why there is a need uh, for obedience. Not that we would earn salvation, but that we would, in this sense, uh, lengthen our days on the land in uh, adjusting for New Testament uh, realities. Now, and the reason that this is so important is because, as, as Moses says in verse 16, God hates all kinds of unrighteousness. All those who defraud and cheat other people, God absolutely hates it. He hates it. And therefore, if this is a characteristic of your life that you are always seeking to get the best deal in everything, and now if you do it lawfully, there's no problem, but if you try to get the best deal in everything by trying to put down other people and to take advantage of them, then it shows that you are not really a Christian. That's the point. Uh, those who are Christians, um, so far from actually seeking to defraud others, actually are required to seek the good of others. That's something that we are commanded to do in the gospel. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ did. He laid down his life for the sake of the good of others. Uh, if you find yourself being envious of others, the question to ask is, why are you not able to celebrate uh, with another person when they uh, get something that's good? That's really what is required of us. Uh, envy and covetousness actually flips this exactly on its head. Whenever someone gets something good, we are upset. Whenever someone has something bad happen to them, we are happy. That's the heart that's covetous. But the thing that's commanded in the scriptures is that you are to rejoice with those who rejoice and you are to mourn with those uh, who mourn. Now, another thing that this indicates then, uh, this is something that we saw particularly as we looked at the exposition of the Eighth Commandment earlier in uh, particularly the end of chapter 23, is that not, not all... Um, not all things that are technically legal are, in fact, righteous. It's something that we have noted. Um, there can be things that are outwardly legal and yet are uh, quite wicked in the sight of God. It's not a justification for your actions if you say, well, I actually made a deal with this person and they agreed to it. If you cheated them to get the deal, then you have still violated the Eighth Commandment, the Ninth Commandment, and the Tenth Commandment. You've still violated uh, all of those uh, commandments. Because something is technically legal does not mean that it is free uh, from all wickedness. The thing that is required is that, you, that in your heart, you know that you are seeking the good of your brother or sister. That in your heart, you are seeking their good. And this is really what Moses is after here. These are all actions that flow from a heart that is seeking to gain something for itself at the expense of another. But Moses commands just the opposite. We are to be pure in heart. And the law of God requires, you know, apart from any kind of civil law, the law of God requires that you would be pure in heart that one day you might see God, that your heart would be free from all kinds of envy and free from all kinds of covetousness. And so those are the laws that are given in verses 5 through 16. Now, notice that in verses 17 through 19, there is uh, this word about the destruction of the Amalekites. And there's a few things, a few questions that we would have to answer here. First is, why is this passage here? 
Uh, I've noticed, noted that it, this is transitional. Uh, Moses is really beginning with verses 17 through 19 to conclude this long section. Now, I know it's been some time since we've had been in a different section of the book of Deuteronomy. If you remember the way that the book of Deuteronomy works, there was first a, 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 a prologue that was given right at the beginning. There was a historical review of all the things that God had done for his people. That was through, through chapter 4. Then in chapters 5 all the way to 26, we've been in this long section uh, on law. And here, Moses is beginning to transition to uh, the conclusion of this long section. And the point is simply this. You are to remember what Amalek has done to you. You are to remember that they were the enemies of God's people and that you that they fought against you. And when you come into the land, you are to destroy them. Now, why is this law here? Uh, we've seen a number of times which, in which there have been laws like this throughout the book of Deuteronomy. Um, and there, there's been explanations that's been given for uh, those kinds of laws. But the point to remember the point to remember is that those who attack the people of God are the enemies of God himself. And this is an important thing to remember. Um, we, are not, we are not really being merciful to people if we simply look past abuses that are done to the people of God. Um, there really should be a righteous indignation that rises up in your soul when you hear of people attacking God's children. There there really should be a righteous indignation. And what we're reminded of here is that everyone who is outside of the people of God is under the wrath of God. And it is a a great sin. It is a great sin for uh, people to attack the people of God. That those are enemies of God's people. You remember uh, uh, Psalm 139 at the end of verses that people probably like to, to, to skip generally. Um, the uh, psalm has a number of uh, very quotable parts to it. Um, but at the end, the psalmist says, Do I not hate those who hate you, O God? Yes, I hate them. I hate them with complete hatred. Uh, that's the language of the psalmist. And it is actually something that is required of us as well. Now, we seek people's conversions. And in in the New Testament era, we have good hope for that in ways that were not present in in the Old Testament. And yet, all throughout Deuteronomy and even now, uh, we would have to say, if someone is an enemy of God and shows their enmity and hatred towards God by attacking the people of God, then there is a very real sense in which hatred uh, is, in fact, the right and good response to it. And by ending this section of the book of Deuteronomy, and again, the, the full and final conclusion will come in chapter 26, but by beginning this conclusion, by with this reference to the Amalekites and their destruction, it reminds us, as we conclude all of Moses' exposition of the Ten Commandments, it reminds us of the seriousness of the commandments of God. Uh, if you find yourself, because of continual and perpetual disobedience to the commandments of God, here we're talking about the Ten Commandments, but there can be apostasy from because of any of the commandments of God. If you find yourself... Uh, seeking constantly to uh, deceive others. If you find yourself consistently breaking any of the other commandments of God, if you bring dishonor on the name of Christ by confessing his name and yet denying him with your works, then you are under the wrath of God, just like the Amalekites were. And your end will be the same and even worse than theirs. And so this is, this is a, a reminder 
at the very end of the book of Deuteronomy. This is even something that Moses had said. If you remember uh, chapter 23, uh, excuse me, chapter 13, Moses says that if anyone, if any city turns away from God, they are to be placed under the ban in exactly the same way that all the Canaanites are going to be. Uh, They're to be destroyed in exactly the same way. If you, through your actions, deny God, then you are put outside of the people of God and are under his wrath. And if this is true of you, then the thing to do is to repent, is to turn to Christ and be saved. If you're a Christian and yet find yourself to have fallen short in various ways, as all of us do, the thing to do is to repent again and to return to Christ anew, to plead for the Spirit who works righteousness in the hearts and lives of the people of God. And may it be that God would grant you the heart to count others as better than yourselves, that your mind would be like the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the perfect example of humility and seeking the good of others, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and, and being given over to death for the sake of his people. And may it be that when you consider your sins and failures, that you would also be reminded of the wonderful grace of God, that though you deserve to be like an Amalekite under the wrath of God, that God has saved you from that through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may it be that this would even cause your heart to melt with love for your Savior once again. And may it be as well that you would, in fact, seek the good of others, truly rejoicing with others when they rejoice and weeping with others as they weep. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we do thank you for your word, which teaches us how we are to live in this life, and how we do thank you for the spirit, which gives us the ability so to do, how we do ask that you would help us to grow in our obedience to you, that we would live lives that are fair, that are righteous, that are godly, that are equitable towards all, and that seek to build others up rather than to tear them down. Forgive us, O Lord, when in our hearts we seek things for ourselves at the expense of others. Forgive us, O Lord, and help us by your Spirit to be renewed. For we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. May God enlighten the eyes of your heart, that through the preached word your eyes may be opened to behold the glory of Christ more and more.